Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke 6, we're going to look in chapter, or chapter 6, verses 20 to 26. I want to finish the uh, richness of poverty and the poverty of riches. One of the dominant themes in, in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is great reversals. It's a, it's a theme that, that runs, it winds its way through the Bible, whether it's talking about the, the great stories of the Old Testament. Um, you have Ruth and you have uh, Esther with, with Haman. Remember Haman and, and that reversal. And, and uh, David, who becomes king. And, and how the mighty are thrown down, such as Pharaoh. And, and there's all kinds of reversals in the Bible. And they are pointing towards eternal truth. Um, eternal truth. And, and Luke has a concentration of reversals that very few books have. Uh, for example, in Luke, and this is just going to run through real fast with some things, and it's not even going to cover it in any kind of detail. But in Luke, the poor become rich. For example, Mary, in her Magnificat, mentioned how that God visited the poor and blessed her with the birth of the Messiah. She's rich in the things that matter, right? The poor shepherds in the fields, the lowest of the low, they're the first ones to get visited by the angels to see the angelic glory and the glory of the Lord and to hear the gospel of the Messiah. In Jesus' parable of the great banquet, the master tells his servants to invite who? When, when he's rejected, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame to the wedding banquet. All of those are people that you would never invite to a wedding banquet, right? And of course, who can forget the, the story of the rich man and Lazarus? Rich man and Lazarus, and what a great um, reversal that is. There, there are other reversals in the social realm in Luke. For, no one was more hated than tax collectors, right? I don't know if it's changed today or not. Um, but... Um, I have a, a roommate from college who's a retired IRS agent, and uh, I, I love giving him a hard time about it, the job that he had. So, um, so if you work for the IRS, it's nothing personal. Um, equal opportunity when it comes to that. But no one was ha more hated than tax collectors, and yet, even during the ministry of John the Baptist, it says that the tax collectors came to be baptized. The first great feast that Jesus attends in the book of Luke is, ha, is by a tax collector with a large company of tax collectors. In Luke 19, Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember that, that one? They're both praying, and he explicitly states that it is the tax collector that gains salvation and not the Pharisee. And of course, who can forget the chief tax collector? His name is Zacchaeus. And the Bible says that Jesus told him salvation has come to your house today, right? The salvation of Zacchaeus in Jericho. Other hated people included the Samaritans. Uh, 
I mean, it would be better for you to be born a dog than a Samaritan, I think, back, back during that time. It was, it was scandalous that Jesus even told the parable of the Good Samaritan. You remember that one? The, the priest and the Levite were framed as, as bad people. They were, the, they were the ones in society that everybody looked at as being the good people and not Jesus. Jesus framed them as the bad people while the Samaritan was shown to be a genuine convert. Matter of fact, I will probably end up stating when I get to that sermon that the Good Samaritan is actually a picture of Jesus Christ because they treated him as a, they called him a Samaritan. In Luke 17, Jesus cleansed ten lepers. Nine who were Jewish didn't bother to come back and say thank you. The one who came back and said thank you was a Samaritan. And Jesus said this, Rise and go your way because your faith has made you well. He was a convert. Only the Samaritans, uh, only that Samaritan received salvation. This is a, a reversal of, of ethnic fortune because Jews thought the Samaritans were not to be part of the kingdom. Likewise, in Luke chapter 7, we have a Gentile centurion who is shown to have saving faith. Women were of low status in Israel, in Jewish society, in Roman society, and yet they were recipients of Jesus' salvation and kindness. In Luke 7, there's a sinful woman who anointed Jesus' feet with her hair. Remember that? Put anointing oil, wiped his feet with her hair, and they're in the presence of Pharisees, and the Pharisees and the scribes, they sat there in condemnation, not only of her, but of Jesus Christ. And Jesus looked at that woman and said, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In Luke 18, he told a parable of the persistent widow. Remember her? The one who kept coming to the judge. And God said that he'll grant her request. And so eternity will be known by great uh, reversals. Eternity is going to be characterized by reversals, and we ought to be thankful for that, uh, characterized by reversals. For some reason, my clicker is not working. Can you forward it? I'm going to see if I can restart this thing. Um, now, the Bible describes unredeemed humanity in, in stark terms. What does the Bible say about the unsaved? And we were all there one time, right? The Bible says, that uh, the unsaved are spiritually blind. For example, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They are spiritually blind. They can't see it. Uh, as a matter of fact, when you think about a blind person, you can take a spotlight and shine it right in their open eyes and they don't see anything. And the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ shined on the eyes of spiritually blind people for three and a half years in Israel, and the blind people never saw that light, saw that glory. Not only are they blind, but they live in spiritual darkness. I have come into the world as light, and whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness they're they're in spiritual darkness so they're blind in darkness that's compounding the problem isn't it 
They can't see anything already. And then they put them in a situation where they're not going to be able to see. Now, what is the result of this? The result is then that they have no spiritual understanding. Romans 3.11 says, No one understands. No one seeks for God. This, this lack of discernment, if you think about it, and the Bible tells us this, this lack of discernment colors their assessment literally of everything, particularly spiritual things. 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are what? Folly, they're foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. These things are spiritually discerned, and so therefore the natural person is never going to be able to discern them, and they're just going to mock it. They're just going to, it's foolishness to them. And finally, the unsaved are dead. They can't even respond to the gospel or to spiritual things. They are spiritually dead. Colossians 2.13 And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh. And so all of these things compound the plight of somebody who does not know Christ. And because of all these things and more, the natural man, the unsaved man, cannot even begin to, to make a proper evaluation of eternity. They can't. And they can't even uh, decide what's important in this life. But you know what? The ministry of the Messiah was to do what? To open the eyes of the blind. Right? Bring men out of darkness into light. Awaken their spiritual understanding and to quicken them to new life. If you're in Christ, that's exactly what happened to you. Isn't that a blessing? And when Jesus does this through his Holy Spirit, our judgment of everything, temporal and everything eternal, changes. We, we finally can see what we could not see before. We can judge what is important and what is not. We, we are alive to a whole new reality. And this in itself is a, is a personal reversal brought about by the grace of God. I, I've, I've often heard people who went to the eye doctor and for the first time got glasses uh, realize, you know, wow, those windows are dirty in the house. Or they, they see things that they couldn't see before, right? My, my dad was um, always hard of hearing, and one time he got new um, hearing aids and was driving in the car and said, said to my mother, man, this car makes a lot of noise, and she said, I've been trying to tell you that, right? And so the ministry of the Messiah, that's what he does. He, he allows us to see and hear and perceive things that we were never able to understand, and it gives us a uh, uh, a quick, we're quickened to a whole new reality. Now, this is where we find ourselves reading today. Jesus is contrasting two distinct views of life. In the verses that we're about to read, we're going to see two different value systems, 
And one is the value system of the saved, and the other is the value system of the unsaved. If you'll stand with me, we'll read Luke chapter 6. You didn't think I was going to get there, did you? Luke chapter 6, verse number 20. Yeah, we're not working, so... And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man." Rejoice in that day and leave for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the prophets, to the false prophets. Lord, we thank you for this short little passage of Scripture packed with so much spiritual truth. I, I pray that, as I, I've prayed multiple times, that you will encourage the saints. That you will also, those whose, whose my, um, eyes and their minds may be strained just a little bit, that you'll bring them back. And Lord, for those who have the wrong value system that you will awaken them to eternal values and they'll receive Christ their Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. So I covered the four Beatitudes last time and I, I figured they're so good we'll cover them again, right? Um, but uh, these are blessings describing the outlook of someone who, who has been saved by Christ. He or she has a new outlook, an eternal perspective, a, and the, the, the spiritual assessment of themselves is accurate and it's different from what uh, we're, we're used to. And so let's, let's look at this. What is their assessment? Let's go to the next slide. Number one, they realize their spiritual poverty. Blessed are the poor. They realize how, how bankrupt they are before a holy God. They realize that there is no moral merit in them. They see their sin for what it is. They see that their sin pervades every area of their life. They see the Holy Spirit, or I mean, they see the Father in all His holiness. And their assessment would be the same as Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 6 when he, he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, and his reaction was what? Woe is me. That's, that's somebody who's spiritually poor. They realize there's nothing good in them. They have been weighed and found wanting, and so they turn to God in for his grace. And what is the reversal? Next slide. The reversal is that in eternity, they will have the kingdom of God. They go from realizing that they have nothing to in eternity they have everything what a wonderful reversal that is right who's the next person the next person is the spiritually hungry they they hunger for the righteousness of god they they see their poverty and they hunger for his righteousness 
They have an unfulfilled longing for eternity. They have a deep craving for Christ and His Word. You ever had that? There, there are some mornings I, I wake up and I read my Bible in the morning uh, and I just hunger for His Word. There are other mornings I get up and the hunger may not be as intense, but I start reading it and all of a sudden to me it's, oh man, I really needed this. This is good. This is satisfying and nourishing. And so there's a, a deep craving for Christ and His Word and they actively seek satisfaction in Christ. And the reversal is that one day they will experience complete satisfaction. Won't that be wonderful? Won't that be wonderful to be fully satisfied for something most likely for the first time in your life? Right? Because that we live in the wilderness. It'll be wonderful. Who's the third, the third person who's blessed? They're the spiritually hungry. They, um, I'm sorry, they're the spiritually sorrowful. They weep over their sin. They long for their sinful nature to be taken away. Man, I tell you what, I long for that all the time. Don't you? I think about my interactions with people. I think about my, my, the, the way that I think and I, I think about my, my failures of people, and I just ask God, God, I long to put off the sinful flesh. Anybody else in that camp? Oh, man. Be quite honest with you, I was praying that very early this morning, that very thing. Lord, I cannot wait to put off my sinful flesh. It will be a wonderful. But these people, they mourn we, they mourn over uh, moral wrongs of this world, the lack of glory given, being given to God. And on that day, when sin nature will be completely removed, righteousness will be full and complete, the reversal is that the sorrow will be turned to eternal joy. I, I cannot wait until that day when joy is actually complete. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, let me give you an example. And I, this is a really low example, but it's kind of a funny one. Last Sunday, I was with people who were watching football. I don't, I don't watch much football, but I had the joy of watching the Packers get beat. That was wonderful. That was joy. But inside... There's a little trepidation because I know Sunday night the Cowboys are going to be playing. And that joy, however temperate it was, turned sorrow very quickly in that game, if you know what I'm talking about. But one day, we're going to get to heaven, and it's complete joy, no tinge of sorrow. The Bible says that we will literally be leaping for joy. The picture I have in my mind have you ever seen a, a baby goat or even a, a, a baby cow? And they're just so happy. They're, they're tipping back and forth, front to back, just leaping for joy, right? And that's, that's kind of the picture I have in eternity. There's a fourth kind of a person, and that is the rejected. The rejected by the world. The, this is the world's assessment. Now, this is not a self-assessment. And the world 
They revile and exclude you. They hate you. They spurn your name as evil. And the reversal is that one day they will be leaping for joy because there's great reward. They will receive a great reward is what the Bible says. Great reward. Now, now this is the assessment of a Christian. Now, why is this the assessment of a Christian? Because we're not living for this life. We're not living for this life, and it's, this is the very important reason, because God opened our eyes to greater things. Much, much greater things. I have a, my, my oldest son Jordan is down in Florida right now. Uh, his, his boss sent him down there, and his job is, he, he drives a tow truck, and he's pulling cars. And there's hundreds of tow trucks down there right now pulling thousands of cars. And so the other day, he sent me a picture of a, a Bentley. And he opened the door and took a picture of the door. It was filled with sand and all kinds of garbage. Last night, uh, he showed me an order. And it's for a 2019 Rolls-Royce Phantom. He's going to pull out. He took a picture of it last night. Uh, he wasn't able to get to it because it was so damaged. Now, I want you to think about something. These are the things that the people in this world, they live for. They're, they're blind. They cannot see. And so what is seen in the flesh is their only goal. But we who are in Christ, God has opened our eyes to greater things. I always think about in the Old Testament when Elisha is surrounded by the army. You remember that? And a servant comes out, and there's the army. And what does Elisha pray? God opened his eyes. And the Bible says that the, the angelic beings far outnumbered the human beings that were there. Opening the eyes to a great new reality. And we have our minds heart's eye fixed on eternity what a blessing that is now jesus moves to a second group of people and he uses the word woe what and, and i want you to think about this i know you already have but just let's just put this into words he uses the word woe and what brings blessing or woe in these verses is almost the exact opposite of what most people think. How can you tell? Here's a question. How can you tell that God is blessing you? Well, normally what we'll say is, or we, we may not be so crass to say it, but we'll think it. Well, the water heater broke. I got a flat tire and the roof leaks, and my kids are acting up, man, I must have done something wrong this week. Don't we think that way? We do. I'll just say it, okay? But the answer that Jesus gives is completely unexpected. He takes the things that no one wants. 
poverty, hunger, sorrow, and persecution and says, those people have his blessing. Then he takes the things that everybody wants. Money, food, entertainment, popularity. And he says that they will never satisfy. And so Jesus teaches his disciples to prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world calls desirable. Now, what about this word woe? We, we tend to think of the word woe as pronouncing judgment, don't we? Uh, because that's kind of the Old Testament flavor. But this word that Jesus used for woe is not pronouncing judgment. It's actually an expression of sorrow or sadness over the way that these people are living and thinking. This is, this is an exclamation of pain and pity for the misfortune who awaits, that awaits somebody who lives in this condition. Jesus saw how tragic it was for people to live for their own way, for them to live for the here and now rather than God's way, which is the only way of blessing, and he's expressing pity on these people. Now, just very quickly run your eyes down this list, this short list. They're they are rich, full, laughing, well-spoken of, and there's a common thread that runs through all of these. What is it? The common thread is that they are finding fulfillment in this life and see no need for fulfillment in the next. There's no concern for eternity. So let's, let's look at these woes real quick. The first one is the rich. Woe to you who are rich. Now, now let's remember about Luke that Jesus was not speaking about everyone who has money. Because there are some godly rich people in the Bible, weren't there? There are quite a few of them. Matter of fact, godly rich people sustained Jesus' ministry while he was on earth. Rather, and this is important, he is speaking about people who seek their life and their happiness only or primarily in material things, and they don't realize the, the need of their souls nor do they acknowledge their dependence upon God. They're, they're rich. They're seeking satisfaction in this life. They're, gaining, they're all about gaining financial security and enjoying the finer things in life. Well, if that's what they're living for, uh, then they have their comfort now. This is the only satisfaction they will ever experience. I don't know the person that owns the car that, that Rolls-Royce Phantom, but let's just think about that. You know, they have, it's on an island, and a hurricane comes, and one day destroys everything that this person holds as the good life. The good life is wiped away in, in one day. Right? How transient are the things of this life? And yet, this is what Jesus says is as that's satisfying, somewhat satisfying, but that's as satisfying as it will ever get for them. Jesus said they have received their consolation. And the verb that he uses in this verse for received 
is, is talking about receipts. You know the, the paid in full? Remember when they used to write paid in full on a receipt? I don't know. People, do people still do that? They email it. Yeah, I know. Nobody writes anymore. Uh, uh, it's shocking to me. I, I don't think they teach kids cursive anymore because nobody writes. It's just everybody, computers and everything. Which, well, anyway, that's another discussion. If you want to talk to me about cursive writing, come up afterwards. We'll talk about it. But it, it's, 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 the meaning is similar to paid in full. Jesus was warning people that money is a temporary blessing at best. It does not last forever. And so people better enjoy it while they can. To put it another way, and I like this. Let me give you an investment tip. You ready for a good investment tip? Here it is. Earthly treasure always turns out to be a bad investment. It does, doesn't it? And yet, everywhere we look, the world is trying to indoctrinate us to believe that we must have the finer things in life. It's so easy for a Christian even to get distracted, isn't it? If you are truly in Christ... It's only temporary. But, but I want you to listen to something because this is true across the board. In Jesus' parable of the four soils, when he was explaining the thorny soil, he explained it this way. Now, this is the gospel going out. He says that the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches will choke out the word, right? Well, that's talking about in the matter of salvation. However, it transfers over into the Christian life. If your mind is on the things of this world, it's going to choke out the blessing of the Word of God. Well, who's the second woe to? The second woe are those who are full, and he uses the, the word now. Woe to you who are full now. This person is the one who is satisfied. They're satisfied with this life. Now, they have no hunger for spiritual things. No hunger for spiritual things. They feel like, because of their present situation, they have everything. They're full. They've lived life to the fullest. They're not even thinking about eternity. And so they're, they're, they're just full. They don't need anything else. Now, this can happen to a Christian temporarily. You start gorging yourself on the things of this world, the things that this world has to offer, and the sweet fellowship of God seems dull and boring. Have you ever been there? We all have, haven't we? One time or another. The Bible says that the mind that is set on this world is death. And this is why teenagers and, and younger adults as well, a steady diet of social media is deadly. It deadens your soul to what is truly important. It, it can turn your heart. It can quench your desire for Jesus. Again, if you're truly in Christ, this is a temporary condition. And God in His love, He will correct your course. I, I've had experiences where my, my mind has been, been uh, strained. And for whatever reason, 
I started listening to maybe two or three sermons in a row. You ever had that happen? What happens to your soul when you do that? Man, it just wakes everything up, doesn't it? And spiritually, you're so joyful and happy, and you think to yourself all of a sudden, you know what? Man, I I was getting a little bit dead there. Another example would be somebody who maybe has felt bad for a long time, and they felt bad for so long, they didn't know what it was like to feel good. And then they feel good, and they, they say to themselves, I didn't realize how bad I felt, or how tired I was, or whatever else. Go ahead to uh, next. But we must pity those who are satisfied with the good things of this life because in the future, I want you to think about this, they will lack for all the things that they now have in abundance. Every single one of them. Eternity for somebody like this is an eternity of desiring things intensely that they will never ever have well let's let's move on to the third woe woe to you who are who are laughing basically woe to you who laugh now for you shall mourn and weep now god doesn't have anything against laughter he created it right he created humor jesus i think tells him humorous things I think one of the more humorous things I see is in John's Gospel on Resurrection Sunday when John made it a point to, to point out to everybody, the whole world knows that he could run faster than Peter. <laughs> God's concern, Jesus' concern was for people who live only for laughs. Let me put it another way. His concern was for people who only lived for a good time and never really got serious about eternal things. Now, this word laugh, I, I do, it's really hard because the same word laugh is used in the blessings. And um, it's hard to explain this, but contextually, that word laugh more often in the Bible, in the New Testament, is used for the laugh of somebody who is deriding somebody else, who's mocking someone else. That's the main thrust of this word. It's used negatively more than positively. And so he says, woe to you who laugh now. They're the people who um, have that, the, the rich people who have that derisive laughter. They laugh at people who, ha- who don't have it as good as them. This is describing people who laugh at people who are godly. They mourn or they they mock and scorn God's word. They ridicule his followers. It's it's the laughter of somebody who is boastful, who is self-satisfied, condescending, or rejoicing at the harm of others. That blows me away, and I know you've seen it. Something tragic happens to somebody and people get on social media and just laugh at it. That's, that's the idea that Jesus is talking about here. And Jesus said that we should be sad for those people because they, the, the people who never get serious about spiritual things will never inherit eternal life. You can go on to the second part. For there will only be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Luke chapter 12 tells us. This is implied 
by the terms mourning and weeping. This is a double description. It, uh, this, this double description, mourning and weeping, is Luke's way of intensifying the reversal of the, and the picture of the pain by using two terms to describe the same idea. I, I explained to you uh, some time ago that in Hebrew, when somebody wanted to say, uh, intensify something, they use the word twice. Now, our English Bibles don't usually uh, put the word twice. They'll say great in front of it. But, for example, in Hebrew, if somebody wanted to say, he fell in a pit, they would say pit. But if they say, somebody fell into a big pit, they would say, he fell into a pit pit. And what Luke is doing here is he's saying, yeah, you laugh now, but in eternity, you will mourn and weep. And he is intensifying how bad it's going to be, the mourning. And that's why Jesus said there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hey, take your Bibles. I want to show you something. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Turn back to Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65. Um, Isaiah 65 is under... Um, depends on your interpretation of Isaiah 65. There's three dominant interpretations of what this is talking about. I'm not going to go into them. But it seems to be that the Lord is speaking of the internal state when he's talking about future blessing and judgment. And look at verse number 13. Isaiah 65, 13. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. Do you notice the intensification going on here? With all four of these, he said, behold. Behold, behold, behold. It's basically, hey, listen up. You're, my servants are going to be singing, you're going to be mourning. Listen up. They're going to be full, you're going to be hungry. Listen up. And that's what Isaiah is doing here. Uh, the Lord is doing, actually, through Isaiah. And, and showing basically the same list that, that Luke is going through, isn't it? Same kind of ideas and he seems to be describing the eternal state here. I could go one more place, but I'll just mark out Amos chapter number 6. And you see the same thing happening. Uh, Israel is, is going downhill quickly. And Amos tells them, you know, you're feasting. He says, you're drinking wine out of bowls. So the idea is you're a bunch of drunkards and you're partying and you're having a good time. But judgment's coming. And that, that's a lot of what the world has to offer now, right? Well, let's go to the last, last one. And he says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, when you're well spoken of. Don't fall into the trap of courting acceptance for one's message at the expense of truthfulness. Oh, man, I see that all the time. It, it seems, now, now, this is a general statement, okay? The more prominent the Christian, the more they temper their message. In general, it's not true in every case. 
And they, they uh, temper it at the uh, expense of truthfulness. It is, it's not wrong for people to speak well of us. As a matter of fact, God wants us to have a good reputation with outsiders. 1 Timothy 3.7 says that's one of the qualifications of a pastor. Outsiders speak well. But when everybody likes your approach to religion, you're in serious trouble. When you can invent a kind of religion that offends nobody, that's a, serious, that's a pretty serious indicator that you're not in the kingdom. When everybody likes you, when everybody likes your approach to religion because it's not offensive, you need to be grouped with who? Go to the second part. The false prophets. Why? Because false prophets seek popularity. False prophets um, want wider popularity because when they get wider popularity, what comes with it? More money, more influence, filthy lucre, greed. If we are living for Jesus, then there are bound to be some people who will not speak well of us. If you believe that the Bible is a mar- that marriage is between a man and a woman, you're a bigot. If you believe that the Bible teaches that homosexuality is wrong, you're homophobic. If you believe that there are only two genders, that is hate speech, right? We see it happening in our culture today, right now. We will be hated and reviled and all the rest of it. And we shouldn't be dismayed by this, but rejoice to suffer for Jesus' sake. Now, when the world loves you, it's the false prophets is being noted here. So Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm going to wrap this up. Jesus is telling his disciples, you must believe it. If you believe it, there's a price to pay. You're going to be persecuted. And I know that, that in that day there were some who um, owned that message, who embraced Christ as their Messiah. They saw themselves as sinners, repented and cried out for mercy. And there were some who no doubt began to turn the other direction, right? But I have a question for you. Next slide. Are you spiritually poor hungry, sorrowful, rejected, crying out to God for mercy through the sacrifice of Christ to whom God has given eternal riches, eternal satisfaction, eternal joy, and eternal acceptance and reward. That's a great reversal, isn't it? Exchanging 70 years or 80 or whatever for eternity... It's a no-brainer. We don't even have to think about it, do we? Are you spiritually poor, hungry, sorrowful and rejected, 
I'm sorry. Uh, are you spiritually full and rich and happy? Go to the next slide. And, and popular. To whom God has promised what? What has he promised? Next slide. Eternal poverty. Eternal emptiness. Eternal sorrow. Eternal rejection. Look at the difference between the two. Anybody in their right mind would choose the previous over this one, wouldn't they? Where are you today? Where are you? Are you full? Or are you sorrowful and hungry? Are you rich? Or are you poor in spirit, knowing the poverty? Two distinct eternities await people. My question is, where are you going? What is your eternity going to be like? There's only two. There's no trans-eternity. There's only two. It's one or the other. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear how you can know. Lord, we thank you for the truth of, of, of your word. It, it is wonderful. It's more than wonderful. We can't even put into words how great our hope for eternity is. And so, Lord, I, I pray that, that we will take your word and apply it to our hearts however it needs to be done. I, I pray that in, in the climate that we live today, it seems like in general, we have become more polarized. And so we view people who are not like us as the enemy. And I pray that you will give us the mind of Christ to see those people who mock us and reject us are rich and satisfied and full and laugh and mock and scorn, that we will have pity on them knowing the eternal destiny and that we will have the love for Christ, the love for your glory and the love for those people enough. We're willing to endure that rejection in order to share the gospel with them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.